Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Microsoft merger. It makes a move to buy gaming giant Activision in a $68 billion deal. Diplomatic drive. High-level efforts to resolve tensions between Russia and Ukraine. 5G fallout, U.S. airlines say new cell service could cause them major problems. It's Tuesday. Let's make a move. A warm welcome to First Move. Great to have you with us on a busy day on the global markets. Stocks are under pressure as U.S. bond yields rise to multi-year highs. Oil is rallying as well. On Wall Street, stocks are set to begin the holiday-shortened trading week with sizable losses a continuation of the volatile action we've already been seeing in January. Tech looks like it's set to begin the session down about one and a half percent. Stocks are pulling back across Europe as well. Higher bond yields, a big contributor to today's weakness. The yield on the benchmark 10-year U.S. Treasury has jumped to a two-year high of over 1.8 percent as markets continue to price in a less accommodative Fed. Rising yields can lead to higher borrowing costs and make riskier parts of the market, like growth stocks and crypto, less attractive. Meantime, higher oil prices are playing into fears of rising inflation. Brent crude today hitting seven-year highs amid rising Mideast tensions and uncertainties over Russia's military intentions toward Ukraine. All this amid a major breaking merger story in the U.S., Microsoft buying video game maker Activision Blizzard in a deal worth almost $70 billion. This is Microsoft's biggest takeover deal ever. Suffice it to say, it's a busy day, as always, on First Move. Let's get right to the drivers and the latest on today's big corporate deal and bring in Paula Monica. He joins us now. Paul, I'll tell you what, this is one of, one of the biggest plays we've seen Microsoft make. Yeah, this is a stunning deal by Satya Nadella's Microsoft. And, uh, you know, there's been so much talk about Microsoft building its cloud uh, business. And I think there hadn't been as much attention paid to the Xbox and gaming side. Clearly, Nadella feels that the metaverse is going to be an increasingly important part of the Microsoft growth strategy as well. And this deal, $70 billion nearly brings Activision Blizzard, which has had a lot of problems because of this harassment scandal that is going on at the company. It's interesting that Bobby Kotick, the CEO who has been maligned by a lot of people at Activision Blizzard, is apparently staying on to run Activision Blizzard as a separate unit of Microsoft. So I think there still could be a lot of controversy involved uh, you know, about this deal. But uh, you know, I think it is a clear indication that Microsoft is going toe-to-toe with the likes of Sony, with Roblox, and uh, you know, with a lot of other companies that have metaverse gaming aspirations. The deal, though, still, it's not a done deal. This deal still has to go through regulatory uh, review. Yes. I mean, like any major acquisition, this will be looked at by antitrust officials in the United States and around the world. It's, I think, still a little too early to say whether or not there's going to be any potential antitrust concerns. Microsoft has done large deals in the past, LinkedIn, for example, and they've been able to get those past antitrust officials. Uh, so 
it's altogether possible that you could have uh, agencies in the U.S. and other parts of the world take a close eye at this deal. But uh, I'm not hearing any indications as of yet. Granted, the you know the news of this is just a you know an hour or so uh, out, but uh, no indications as of yet that this is a deal that won't pass regulatory muster. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what this deal winds up doing for gaming as we progress into the metaverse. We will see about that. Paula Monica, thanks so much for breaking all those details down for us. A Saudi-led coalition has launched retaliatory strikes on the capital of Yemen. They are in response to drone attacks on Abu Dhabi by Iranian-backed Houthi rebels from Yemen, which killed three employees at the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company. The rising tensions in the Gulf have sent oil prices to multi-year highs. Let's bring in Sam Kiley. He joins us now with the latest from the UAE capital. Sam, what's the latest? Well, Alison, the latest is uh, really coming from uh, Sana'a, the capital of Yemen, the headquarters of the Houthi rebels, where uh, the government there is saying that 12 people at least have been killed in this retaliatory attack that came hours after uh, the foreign ministry here in Abu Dhabi said that uh, the what they called a terrorist escalation would not go unpunished. Among the dead are reportedly, and we have no independent confirmation of either the number of dead or the, the uh, type of people who were killed, but according to Houthi officials, these, the, the dead include uh, women and children. Now, uh, there was an attack on a civilian area in Sana'a. Uh, there's also been a large number of attacks on very much military sites. We've had uh, local reporters on the ground working for us who've been unable to get to and film any of the aftermath of the attacks on the military sites, but they have been encouraged by local officials to visit these civilian areas. But this, uh, whichever way you look at it, it is the heaviest level of airstrikes that has been conducted against Sana'a, really probably the heaviest sort of air attacks that have been seen in northern Yemen in some time, certainly many months since such a a high level of attack has been visited upon the Yemeni capital, and particularly with this very high uh, alleged civilian death toll. And it does come following the murder of three people here that uh, the Houthis claimed responsibility for and said it was because the Emirates had stepped back into the civil war in the Yemen. And there is independent confirmation that uh, the Emiratis have been supporting at least one major militia group there in their fight against the Houthis, not with boots on the ground, we don't think, but possibly with money or weapons. It's not clear. The Emiratis have not commented on that. But this is a blow for the Emirates, who had been trying to extricate itself from the Yemeni civil war and indeed warm relations with Iran just across the uh, Gulf. Uh, the uh, Iranians uh, have been quietly uh, engaging with the Emiratis at, at the instigation of the Emiratis. And the Emiratis will now want to know how much, if anything, the uh, Iranians were involved in this attack. Uh, it might have involved Iranian-made missiles, for example, or Iranian technology. And that is something the Emiratis will be quietly furious about, Alison. Yeah, the violence that's happening there in the region, it's bringing those tensions to a new level. And you mentioned the Iranians. I'm curious how, you know, these regional tensions are going to, um, you know, make it more difficult for Washington and Tehran to work to rescue a nuclear deal. Well, the uh, efforts of the Biden administration to rescue that nuclear deal is getting a degree of support, quite a lot of support here in the Emirates who have their own bilateral, have had their own bilateral. Uh, they've had a trade mission. They've got bilateral communications with Iran. They have uh, rejected outright any further attempts, for example, 
to impose sanctions on Iran. So uh, they are actually potentially a conduit for communications between the West and uh, Iran. Uh, but this setback uh, of this uh, Houthi attack uh, is very significant and will be very difficult for the uh, Emiratis to overcome in the short term. But in the long term, their future foreign policy is very much premised on getting out of these sorts of violent engagements that they've had in the Yemen, uh, in Libya uh, and other parts of the world through proxies occasionally and back onto a track of very serious and warm diplomacy with as many people as they possibly can. The idea that uh, they were once described as little Sparta is not something that they want to continue uh, to be seen as, Alison. Okay, Sam Kiley, uh, live for us from Abu Dhabi. Thanks so much for all that great perspective. Top U.S. airlines are calling for an immediate halt to the rollout of 5G services due in less than 24 hours. They warn of, and I'm quoting here, a catastrophic aviation crisis if it goes ahead on Wednesday. The carriers are concerned 5G signals will interfere with aviation technology. They warned, quote, to be blunt, the nation's commerce will grind to a halt. Pete Montine joins us now. Pete, you know, this dispute, it's been going on for a while now. And, you know, the rollout expected to happen tomorrow. That means we probably need to know today whether or not it's actually going to happen. But at the same time, we see 5G working in several other countries. What seems to be the issue here in the U.S.? The airlines have known about this. Why have they not prepared for it? You make a really interesting point here, Allison, and the telecom industry says, yes, the airlines have known about this for a while and they should have upgraded their equipment to deal with this. But the airlines say there is a real threat to your safety here, and that could lead to more delayed flights, more canceled flights to the tune of about a thousand a day, they say, on a normal day. Now, the issue here is all about the 5G radio spectrum, and airlines say that will interfere with something called radar altimeters. That is a critical piece of equipment on board everything from commercial airliners to cargo planes to helicopters. You really need it as a pilot because that shows your exact height above the ground, especially in those critical moments right before landing, also in low visibility. Without that, that's what the airlines say could lead to delays and compromise your safety. So the airline CEOs have written the Department of Transportation and the White House to say either put this off for a little while longer or come up with a different solution, maybe a buffer zone around airports. We'll get to that in a second. In this letter, they say, quote, the ripple effects across both passengers and cargo operations, our workforce and the broader economy are simply incalculable. Now, the FAA says there has already been a warning at about 80 airports across the country. It says it's working on this to try and make sure that this deployment is safe. Also working with the FCC, it says United Airlines proposes a solution, a two mile buffer zone, turning off these 5G radio transmitters around runways, a critically safe area, they say there needs to be. They say this has also worked in places like France and other places across uh, the world. They say we won't compromise on safety. Full stop. Governments in other countries have successfully designed policies to ensure the safe deployment of 5G, and we are simply asking the U.S. government to do the same. But this is at the 11th hour, Alice, and we will see if the White House intercedes here, comes up with another delay. Remember, this was already delayed two weeks, putting this off a little bit longer, or if they do this buffer zone. The telecom industry says this has worked in plenty of other countries. There's really not an issue here, they say. at 
AT&T and Verizon are really behind this big push. And in this case, they're not commenting on this new letter from the airline CEOs to the Biden administration. We also know members of Congress are lobbying onto this as well. We'll see if that push lends anything to this uh, change here. We'll see what happens. When that decision coming down this afternoon, right? Yeah, I mean, the, the moments are fading away quickly here. We're, we're right at the 11th hour. 5G is set to turn on tomorrow, on Wednesday. So uh, the clock is ticking here, and uh, now the airline industry is really wanting an 11th hour change from the White House. We will see if they actually do that here in this case. Okay, Pete Montine, thanks so much. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will travel to Ukraine this week as speculation grows that Russian forces are poised to invade. Meantime, a group of U.S. senators are now in Kyiv discussing tougher sanctions on Russia and more military aid for Ukraine. Fred Plaikin is live in Moscow with the latest. Okay, so, uh, Fred, we are learning that the German chancellor says he's expecting Russia to de-escalate. And over the past many weeks, there have been lots of diplomatic meetings, but the reality is Russia has not committed Mm -hmm. to de-escalating. So now there's talk of sanctions. So I have a couple of questions here. Would sanctions even make a difference at this point, or is a Russian invasion of Ukraine inevitable? Well, I think one of the things, uh, Allison, that the Russians have certainly done over the past couple of years is they've really tried to insulate themselves uh, from the effects of sanctions. This is, uh, by all accounts, still a fairly strong and robust economy. And one of the things that the Russians certainly have built up is a lot of uh, reserves. Uh, and so they could potentially, if there were massive sanctions, certainly hold out against those. And, of course, and, and quite frankly, also, over the past couple of years, the sanctions that have been levied uh, against Russia really haven't caused Russia to change the course that it's taken. Nevertheless, of course, sanctions uh, are still potentially a powerful tool. And there are, of course, uh, projects that the Russians are very interested in, where they certainly would not want to see those sanctioned at all. One of those projects is, of course, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline between Germany and Russia. And we do have the German foreign minister who is here in Moscow today. I was actually just at her press conference with the Russian foreign minister, uh, with Sergei Lavrov. And one of the things the German foreign minister said, and these are some tough words that we haven't heard in this forum from a German foreign minister in a very long time, is she said that, of course, if there were further military moves by the Russians to invade further into Ukraine, a military escalation, that that would also most likely affect that pipeline as well. The Germans saying, in the form of the foreign minister, saying that Germany will uh, also defend what she calls the European uh, value system, even if it means grave economic consequences for Germany as well. Obviously, the Germans trying to align themselves very closely with the U.S., who have already said that the Nord Stream pipeline at least needs to be in play somehow. But that is certainly something that the U.S. sees as potential leverage and that the Germans apparently are starting to see as that uh, as well. So sanctions potentially could make a difference. Would they deter Russia? Very difficult to say, but in the future, they certainly haven't, Allison. Okay, Fred Plaikin, thanks so much. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. We're starting to get a better sense of the destruction from the volcanic disaster and tsunami in Tonga. New images show the coastline nearly wiped out and trees homes and fields covered in a thick layer of ash. CNN's Blake Essig has more. While we haven't received reports of mass casualties, the reality is we still don't know the extent of the damage, especially for those outlining islands close to the eruption site. Now it's because communication with anyone in Tonga remains extremely limited and ashfall has left runways unusable, preventing outside aid from arriving. 
And New Zealand has sent two Royal Navy ships, but they won't arrive for about three days. For now, aid organizations on the ground say the biggest issue is food and water security as a result of ash contamination. North Korea says it fired tactical guided missiles on Monday to test the accuracy of its weapons. State media say the projectiles were launched from the west of the country and hit an island target off the east coast with precision. It was the fourth missile test Pyongyang has conducted this year. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is insisting he believed a party held at Downing Street over lockdown was a work meeting. He's facing claims from a former aide that he lied to Parliament about the purpose of the event. The prime minister's just spoken to reporters about it. I can tell you categorically, categorically that nobody told me and nobody, nobody said that uh, this was something that was against the rules, that was a breach of the, of the COVID rules, or we were doing something that wasn't a, a work event, because, uh, frankly, I don't think... Uh, I can't imagine why on earth it would have gone ahead or why it would have been allowed. Still to come on First Move, old brands break new ground. John Deere aims to lead the field with a revolutionary self-driving tractor controlled from a mobile phone. And Ducati races into 2022 on a historic high at the age of 96, delivering more bikes than ever before. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks remain on target for a week open as investors monitor rising U.S. bond yields as well as higher oil prices. U.S. 10-year yields are spiking to levels we haven't seen since the 2020 lockdowns as embracers, em, investors brace for aggressive Fed monetary tightening. Chinese leader Xi Jinping telling the World Economic Forum today that Central banks risk harming economic recoveries if they raise rates too far too fast. Markets now see some four Fed rate hikes this year as officials battle the hottest consumer inflation in 40 years. That said, the U.S. economy is beginning 2022 on a solid footing. The labor market remains strong. Robust profits are expected to lend support to markets as well. And corporate deal-making not hurting either. News today of Microsoft's almost $70 billion deal for video game maker Activision Blizzard. Activision shares are up about 35% in pre-market trading. Let's bring in Jeremy Siegel. He's a professor of finance at the Wharton School, and he joins us live. Great to see you, Jeremy. Hello, Allison. Let's start with the Federal Reserve, because that seems to be what's getting the market all riled up in the pre-market, the rising rates and uh, the expectation that a March rate hike is all but a certainty. And the expectation for the full year is now for four hikes. Do you think, though, uh, if the Fed does stick to four hikes or even three, that that's enough to get a handle on inflation? Can the Fed catch up? No, I I think the Fed is way behind the curve, and I think they're going to have to do much more than four hikes. Uh, you know, raising the Fed funds rate, which is a short-term interest rate, to 1% when you have 7% inflation doesn't really s- slow down borrowing and spending. I think the Fed may have to go to 2% or even higher to slow down the inflation that we have. Okay, so we're looking at more hikes or bigger hikes, but then we run the risk of the market reacting with a correction 
And that is something that the Fed's not supposed to look at, but often does. And could that push the Fed to do less and act less aggressively? Well, you know, the Fed can't always be a babysitter for the stock market. It has to do what's best for the economy. And I think certain parts of the stock market are going to take some lumps, especially those very high-priced uh, tech stocks that, that are based on revenue streams that are years and years in the future. I think we're going to see a rotation of investor interest to the more value stocks from those growth stocks. Um, but I think that the Fed has to take the economy into priority and not just say, I'm going to stop any decline in the stock market. There are going to be some lumps this year, although I still think the market could hand, end higher in 2022. Should the Fed be taking a global view as well? I mean, thinking about what China, uh, China's input was. Um, Xi Jinping at the World Economic Forum, he gave a speech online warning against the effects of raising interest rates too much too quickly. Now, him saying this as he went ahead and cut his rate. Um, but the concern from Xi is that the measures, meaning tightening too fast, could threaten global financial stability. Is there any truth to that? Well, I think everyone is worried that if the Fed is very much behind the curve and then they panic and start raising rates too much, way too fast, that will dip into a recession, which is really bad for China. Now, China has its own challenges, as you know, right now with, with supply change and, and trying to keep a COVID zero policy. So clearly, uh, Chairman Xi is worried about a, a global recession. And it may be that the Fed has to raise rates enough to cause a slowdown. I'm not calling a recession yet, and I don't think one will happen in 2022, but 2023 is, is still up for consideration. And I think that uh, the rest of the developing world, including uh, uh, China, is worried about that. You sound pretty confident that the Fed could wind up tightening us into a recession. I, I think they may have to tighten us into a slowdown that approaches a recession to get a handle on, as you mentioned right at the onset, 40-year high inflation. We don't stop inflation mm. this high without some sort of economic slowdown. Okay. Despite all the Fed tightening that's expected, you still see stocks rising this year. Why and what kind of returns can, can investors expect? Well, I still believe in the, what's called the TINA, T-I-N-A thesis. Where else are you going to put your money? Uh, I mean, uh, you know, cash, uh, uh, bonds in an inflationary environment like this are going to give you negative returns. Stocks are based on real assets, real capital, real land. I think most firms are going to be able to pass those price increases on to keep their profits up. So although stock returns will not match what we had in 2021, I still think we could have 5 to 10% positive returns in 2022. Okay, we are seeing high-flying tech stocks get killed as bond prices rise. Should investors be rotating out of tech, and if so, into what sectors? Well, I, I think those sectors that are going to, uh, that have good cash flow, that have dividends, because our research, uh, economic research shows that dividends are basically inflation-protected firms getting cash flows that that are better than uh, the inflation rate. Um, and I think that those dividend paying stocks, those value stocks, which have done, yes, absolutely, so poorly over the last five, six years, I think are gonna have their time here in 2022. 
What about Bitcoin and other crypto? We're seeing um, crypto fall from sharply from their highs. Uh, and it, so if Bitcoin is an inflation hedge, why aren't we seeing it do better? Well, don't forget, Bitcoin has appreciated so very, very much. Uh, it's getting a lot of competition. Uh, as you know, there's this whole movement of, of uh, you know, uh, proof of uh, uh, stake versus proof of work moving to alternative coins. And I think a big factor is regulation, um, which uh, uh, it is facing in, in 2022. Part of it was the Build Back Better program, but if it's chopped into parts, there's bipartisan support for more regulation on, on Bitcoin. Uh, and I think that that's one of the worries that uh, a lot of those the holders of the cryptocurrencies uh, do have. Great talking with you, Jeremy Siegel, professor of finance at the Wharton School. Always love getting your analysis. Thanks very much, Allison. And we'll be right back. The market open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Allison Kosick. U.S. stocks are up and running after the long holiday weekend. And as expected, we've got a lower start to the trading week with tech seeing the biggest losses. Stocks are falling as traders eye rising bond yields and higher oil prices. Uh, Goldman Sachs now sees $100 a barrel oil by the second half of this year. And speaking of Goldman, shares of the banking giant, they are falling in early trading after the release of their fourth quarter results. Earnings missing estimates as higher labor costs weighing on profits. Trading revenues also disappointing Wall Street. Also today, shares of Activision Blizzard are soaring in uh, early trading on news of Microsoft's mammoth $68 billion bid for the company. Microsoft is set to pay $95 a share for the video game maker. Beijing remains on high alert ahead of next month's Winter Olympics. Three new COVID cases were found in the Chinese capital. Selena Wang joins us now with details. So, Selena, it looks like all of these extreme measures to keep COVID out of the country, they clearly are not working. Yeah, Allison, and the timing could not be worse with the Beijing Winter Olympics just 17 days away. So Beijing, the host city, had reported its first Omicron case over the weekend. They have now just detected two more cases linked to that Omicron case, including the woman's mother and a colleague. A third case was also detected, a Delta variant case that was not linked to the original Omicron case. Now, despite having some of the strictest COVID policies in the world, Omicron has breached China's major financial technology and political hub. It is in Beijing. It is in Shanghai and Shenzhen. But China is still trying to stamp out every last one. Across China, some 20 million people are sealed inside their homes. For the four cases detected in Beijing, their residential compounds are in lockdown. And the woman who first tested positive for Omicron, authorities have tested thousands of people who had been to places that that woman had recently been to in Beijing. And authorities now saying that it is possible that woman got Omicron from a package that had been shipped from overseas that she had ordered from Canada. Important to note here that several times throughout the pandemic, China has pushed this idea that the virus could have come from overseas through these packages. That is despite health experts saying the risk of transmission from surfaces is low. Allison. Someone tell us what's happening in Hong Kong where authorities are worried about COVID transmission from pets. 
a very extreme measure here. We are seeing echoes of China's zero COVID tolerance in Hong Kong as well. Authorities in Hong Kong are ordering that 2,000, around 2,000 small pets are going to be euthanized, including all pet shops hamsters. They're also banning the imports of small animals. They're asking all pet shops to hand over their hamsters to be killed and to suspend operations immediately. All of this, Allison, in response to one shop worker testing positive for Delta and around a dozen hamsters testing positive as well. And all of this despite health authorities saying that the risk of transmission from animals to humans is low. But what this all emphasizes, Allison, these extreme measures that as much of the world is learning to live with COVID and trying to move on in China and Hong Kong, they are still sticking with these zero COVID strategies, which are sometimes extreme and sometimes result in casualties for pets. Allison. All right, Selena Wang, thanks very much. Now it's time to change gears and look at where agriculture meets Silicon Valley. Farm equipment maker John Deere presented a fully autonomous tractor earlier this month, which it says is ready for full-scale production later this year. All the farmer needs to do is put it in a field and configure it for autonomous operation. Using a mobile app, they start the tractor with a swipe and just walk away or sit back and watch it get to work. Sounds easy. <laughs> Jamie Hinman is the chief technology officer at Deere & Company, which owns John Deere. He joins us from the headquarters in Moline, Illinois. Great to have you on the show today. Great to be here. So you unveiled this fully autonomous tractor at, C at the Consumer Electronics Show this month. It sounds like it can do everything but, but make dinner. Uh, what can't it do? <laughs> uh, it's it's it is pretty cool. It is, and, and I would argue that technology sort of always been on the farm, Allison. But this is just the culmination of a long road that we've traveled of increasing automation on the farm to really help solve the labor problem and make farming more efficient. When is this tractor going to be available to farmers, and how much does it cost? And is it is it so brand new that it's really out of reach for uh, for most farmers? Yeah, this is really technology that gets added on to our current tractors. So, so pricing-wise, it's uh, it's it's a similar price to the the way the current tractors are sold. We're still working through what the right business model is for the technology and trying to understand from farmers how they want to digest that technology on the farm. Talk more about how this this kind of tractor, an autonomous tractor, can help make a difference in the lives of farmers and those who have yeah, you know, it's not just in their lives but their businesses as well. Yeah, it's a great question. You know, I think um, it, it, it gives really the, the best gift that can be given to a farmer, that gift of time, and they can choose to, to use that time however that they want, right? Farmers uh, before autonomy would spend, you know, up to 16 hours a day in the cab of a tractor. And so if you had 16 hours a day uh, to do something else, what would you do with it? Many farmers will use that time to make their businesses better. Uh, they'll make better business decisions. They'll be more into the data that comes off their farm to make those decisions better. Uh, and they'll also use it to improve their quality of life, like going to a football game, uh, you know, with their with their children or being more uh, participative in, in their community. So I think it's it's that gift of time that we're really giving them. What about food supply and keeping crops in better shape because they're being monitored by technology? Yeah, there's no doubt that that's a big part of this, right? The, the, the current world population of 8 billion people headed towards 10 billion people by 2050. Uh, farmers simply have to do more with less. Uh, and one of those things that they have to do less with or more with less is labor. And, and that labor shortage that already exists on the farm, 
this will give them the ability to to take that time uh, and use it to do other things on the farm like to your point examine the data coming off their farm their crop health as an example uh, to make better decisions for their farm to produce more food with less so as your company prepares to roll out these tractors i'm curious if supply chain issues are impacting that goal um, you know how the chip shortage may be impacting this effort yeah, we're pretty confident actually with this autonomy introduction that we'll be able to support that with the, the existing supply constraints. That said, uh, we've got a great team uh, that battles those supply constraints every day that works really hard to provide the, the equipment that farmers need. And this kind of rolls into the idea of, um, you know, sort of technology taking over what many farmers can do, you know, with, with a labor shortage. Um, you know, I'm talking about the strike by UAW members uh, late last year in the summer of last year. It was the first strike against your company in 35 years, and you came to a new six-year contract with workers. But Deere also said in November said that you're going to have to increase prices on large farm equipment by about 8 percent. And analysts agree, saying to pay for for uh, the contract that you all signed, Deere will continue to have to raise prices. So I'm curious, are higher wages expected to impact your profits unless you raise equipment prices? Yeah, that's a good question. We're, we're really happy that the folks are all back to work and that the contract is sold. I think uh, the reality is we're all operating in an inflationary environment today. Like we see that everywhere. Uh, that impacts, uh, it, it impacts everything that we do. It impacts our raw material. It certainly impacts our labor as well. You recently penned an op-ed uh, saying that the farm is poised to be the place where fully autonomous vehicles first break through to profoundly impact every one of the 7.7 billion people on the planet. Talk to me about what the future of farming looks like, um, what agriculture looks like. Um, are we going to see you know, fewer farmers, more automation? Yeah, I don't know that we'll see fewer farmers, but I do think we'll see continuing automation. What we call this precision agriculture, it's this idea of being able to precisely treat every plant at scale. Uh, and so I think you'll see technology being used to do that, to give every plant its um, best chance of producing its optimal amount of food for, for the planet. Okay, now that you've got an autonomous tractor ready to go, I want to hear what's next. Yeah, I mean, autonomy is going to continue to, to, to be on the farm. So you, you can envision other things that become autonomous on the farm over time. And this, I would argue, is just a small down payment on that future. Okay, Jamie Hinman, Chief Technology Officer of Deer and Company. Thanks so much for your time today. Thanks for letting me be here. And after the break, let's pick up the pace. We're going to go from tractors to motorcycles and why Ducati is roaring into 2022. Welcome back. Italy's Ducati is firing on all cylinders as it races into the new year. The motorcycle brand hit a record 59,000 deliveries in 2021. This despite chip shortages and other supply chain challenges. And Ducati has no plans to slow down. This year, it will launch nine new models. Among them, a long-awaited off-road bike that marks a foray into new territory. Joining me now is Jason Chinnick. He's the CEO of Ducati North America. Great to have you on the show today. That's my pleasure, Nelson. Let's start off with these record sales numbers for 2021. Talk us through what kind of year 2021 was for Ducati, considering there was this push and pull, you know, the push of strong demand around the globe for your motorcycles and the pull of supply chains being stretched. Well, it has been an incredible year for us. 
And a big part of it is a lot of, to do with the fact that we've had a strong performance in the new product that we brought out and also how the market reacted to it. A lot of our customers have actually learned that in the past today was a concept of, uh, let's say, uh, wanting it yesterday. And now they're in a position where they're willing to wait a little bit for the right product because it's high in demand. And you know what? During the pandemic, there was a huge, just a, a burst of popularity around owning a, motor, a motorcycle. And, you know, and not just yours, but a lot of them, especially during pandemic times, was interesting. Industry figures show, you know, in London during the height of the pandemic, uh, new, mo- new motorcycle registrations were up there by the double digits. Same with Europe, Asia and China. Why do you think there was such interest in owning a motorcycle, especially during the height of the pandemic and now continuing? A lot of people have made the decision that if they're going to live life, regardless of what's happening out there in the, the world, and so as a result, when people have made a decision to uh, have capitalized on this opportunity of owning a motorcycle, they've decided that they're going to have the best. And this is where we come into play at the top of the motorcycle market. All right, let's talk about some of your new products. You've also announced a wide range of products to be released this year. Uh, go through with me what, what are the standouts and how do some of the bikes on your list you know, expand your portfolio? A lot of the motorcycles that we've released in the last year and actually what we have coming up are really an evolution of what we've learned on the race. We race in MotoGP, the highest level of motorcycle, and a lot of that technology eventually is a trick that's way down to Our customers love that. But what we're seeing for 2022 is a real departure from that and actually moving into the world of off-road motorcycling. And this is through, let's say, an adventure touring style motorcycle called the Desert X. And this is the first motorcycle that we've built in almost 30 years that it's going to have a real off-road capability. Um, Ducati, I've learned, will also become the spec supplier for the all-electric Moto E Championship. This is beginning in 2023, which is going to be Ducati's first foray into electric motorcycles. First of all, why enter into this venture, um, you know, the, uh, the event itself? Well, this is an excellent opportunity for us to prove technology in the electric motorcycling world. And at the highest level, and this is something that we generally have been known for, like I mentioned, us racing in MotoGP. And the intent here is that we will develop technologies that will eventually make its way to a street motorcycle. But come 2023, we expect that we're going to have a very competitive field while the last few years, maybe the Moto E project hasn't been performing at the same level that people would expect it to. But with our product, with our brand, we expect kind of a resurgence in this concept between the electric motorcycle. A lot of diehard motorcyclists will say, oh, my gosh, Ducati going electric. That takes away the everything about riding a motorcycle, the sound, the feeling. What do you say to, 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 to motorcyclists who say that? Well, there is a little bit of that. And quite honestly, the way that I've been riding motorcycles for my entire life is you do ex- get that visceral experience from a motorcycle that is a combination of, let's say, awakening all of the senses. But I'm confident in some of the electric product that I've ridden and driven, that there's a way for us to be able to capture that. And what we've learned uh, from our customers as we've actually evolved a lot of the technologies that were previously sacred cows that we could never touch. 
that as long as we're able to deliver what people experience from the brand, and that is that emotional connection to an inanimate object, then we will be able to deliver on their expectations. So I'm confident that our designers and our engineers will be able to do, do that and to be able to evoke that emotion that comes from riding a motorcycle. And it's one of the things that we've already seen the public response from the pictures that we've released in the course of the last couple of months that is teased a little bit about what we're going to be doing. So I'm confident that uh, our team is going to be able to deliver on those expectations. And just to be clear, the, the Moto E Championship, um, where you're going to be providing uh, the electric the electric bikes, um, at what point will you produce uh, an electric motorcycle that's actually available for consumers? Well, it's a bit premature for me to be able to comment on that just because there's a lot of things that need to be put into place in advance. And one of the things that's learned in the world, been learned in the world of electric motorcycling is that the ultimate challenge that we have is the battery technology and the weight associated to it. Because one thing that Ducati is known for is style, sophistication, performance, and trust. And that performance is a big attribute of our brand. It's a requirement. With the weight that in most cases has to end up going high, it really changes the handling of a motorcycle. And as a result, it sometimes compromises what people are expecting to be able to get from an electric motorcycle. So that's in development right now. Like I said, it's, it's some years down the road, but hopefully everything that we learn in the Moto E project will end up giving us the tools that we need to bring something to market that people would expect that's worthy of wearing the Ducati badge. Overall, do you think the surge in motorcycle buying that we've seen lately, does that challenge some cities' long-term goals for air and noise pollution and even safety? I, I realize that motorcycles do emit less carbon than cars mile to mile, but they do give off a disproportionate amount of traffic-related pollutants. And they obviously make their, their presence known with, with a big howl. <laughs> yes, no doubt. I mean, and that, that is a concern, and it's actually one of the reasons why we're looking into these different areas of trying to find solutions that will address that. Um, and, but one other thing when we talk about safety, you know, Ducati, we released last year the very first motorcycle with radar. And what that's allowed us to do is to be able to put some technology in the motorcycle that gives features of safety for the rider, including blind spot indicators that's been used on cars for years. But for the first time, that's a technology that's been introduced into motorcycling. So we're not only dedicated to that of performance, but also to try and improve uh, our environmental impact uh, and also the safety for the riders themselves. And these technologies are something that are continuously evolving, and we're always in the forefront of them. Okay, Jason Chittick, CEO of Ducati North America. I really enjoyed our conversation on a fun topic. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. You have a great day. You too. Coming up after the break, Armageddon averted. A giant asteroid about to squeeze its way past the Earth. No need to duck and cover, but all the details are next. In a few hours, a giant asteroid twice the size of the Empire State Building, that is going to fly by our planet. Though labeled potentially hazardous, astronomers say it will not strike Earth. CNN's Jennifer Gray is here to prove to us that it will not hit Earth. Um, I'm curious if we're <laughs> going to be able to see this, too, if, if, if the skies are clear. Well, I think you'll probably need a telescope to see it, and you'll also have to know where in the sky to look. So I personally won't be seeing it. I'm going to leave it up to, to NASA to hopefully send out some video of this passing by. Um, but... 
if you're super savvy and you know what you're doing, you definitely have a shot. This is going to happen in just under seven hours. We have our asteroid watch up now, about six hours, 57 minutes. And just to put it to scale, you can see Earth's trajectory right there and then the asteroid uh, that's going to be coming in very close uh, to Earth. Now, if you put it to scale with the solar system, it looks incredibly close. But if you put it to scale, say, with our human standards, it's actually not going to be close at all. It's going to be rather far away. It is traveling quickly, uh, just about 20 uh, kilometers per second. That's how fast it's going to be traveling. The last time it was this close to Earth was back in the 30s. And its next pass with Earth, this close is going to be in the next 200 years. So this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for us. Uh, its closest path is going to be five times the moon's distance. So that gives you a little bit of perspective of how close or far it's going to be, uh, 1.9 million kilometers away. So it is going to be uh, quite far. We are looking at uh, this asteroid has been widely researched. So this was first discovered in uh, 1994. It's been officially discovered in 1994. It's been observed since 1974. So this has been widely researched. We've been watching this for a very, very long time. And so that's why scientists are very confident that it's not going to make an impact with Earth, Allison. Uh, but it's definitely exciting for folks that are, that are into this sort of thing and love space. And I know you're into this sort of thing, so I'm curious, do you sit back on a weekend and watch, you know, your favorite Armageddon movie, your favorite asteroid movie like Armageddon or Deep Impact? What's your favorite? <laughs> oh, man. I think I'm going to have to go with Armageddon. Um, Me too. Bruce my Willis producer and I were just talking about this, actually. Oh, my gosh. I think I've watched it 100 times. I cried like a baby. And that Aerosmith song, I think, is still stuck in my head from, <laughs> from when the movie came out. We all, we all remember it. Oh, yeah, I'm an Armageddon fan, too. Okay, well, I can't wait to, to uh, hear what NASA has to say about this thing after it passes by. Um, yeah. You know, what its makeup is and, and, and all the details. Okay, Jennifer, Jennifer Gray, thanks so much for going through all that for us. And finally, on first move, while planet Earth breathes a sigh of relief, a Canadian driver also had a lucky escape. She was speeding across a frozen river, and guess what happened? Well, people nearby rushed to help, including someone with... A kayak. And while waiting, of course, the driver had to take a few selfies on top of the car while it was sinking. Not sure that that's the brightest idea. Uh, good for her. She was rescued, though, and she's okay. But police have charged her and warned her that no ice is safe ice. That's it for the show. Go ahead and follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Connect the World is next. I'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.